Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 27 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and the moderator of today's forum. We are pleased to be broadcasting from Weyerhaeuser Chapel on the campus of McAllister College in St. Paul. McAllister College, an historic Presbyterian school, is one of the premier liberal arts colleges in the United States, distinguished by its high standards of scholarship and a special emphasis on internationalism, multiculturalism, and service to society. We invite those of you who are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio to join us for our next forum at Westminster Church in downtown Minneapolis. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming town hall forums may be found online at eWestminster.org. It's my pleasure to welcome the first speaker in our spring series, Perspectives on America, Election 2008. Jim Wallace has been described by African-American theologian Cornell West as the major prophetic evangelical Christian voice in America today. Raised in a devout evangelical family, Jim Wallace grew up with prayer and Bible study as an integral part of his life. During his teenage years, his questioning of racial segregation in his own church and community led him to the black churches and neighborhoods of inner city Detroit. He became a committed participant in the civil rights movement and actively protested the Vietnam War. While attending Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, Mr. Wallace joined with others in starting the Sojourners Community and Magazine. More than 35 years later, Mr. Wallace remains the executive director and editor-in-chief of Sojourners, which continues its commitment to providing alternative perspectives on faith, politics, and culture. He was a founder of the organization Witness for Peace, which sent hundreds of its members to Central America to act as observers and human shields when death squads were killing thousands of people in that part of the world. He led the organization Call to Renewal, a national federation of religious congregations and faith-based organizations working to overcome poverty in America and the world. Mr. Wallace is the author of eight books, including his newest, The Great Awakening, Reviving Faith and Politics in a Post-Religious Right America which examines historic periods of spiritual revival in our country that resulted in the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, child labor law reform, and the civil rights movement. Mr. Wallace believes that America is on the verge of another great awakening when citizens will mobilize to reclaim their government as a force for good. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Jim Wallace. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. It is uh, very good to be back at the Westminster Town Hall Forum again, uh, and to be the first speaker for your spring campaign. Only in the Twin Cities could you call this spring. <laughs> uh, it is the weather that keeps drawing me back here again and again, and a lot of friends in this town and around the state. I'm happy also to be part of the Minnesota Public Radio uh, event, and uh, I had the 
privilege of being on mid-morning with Carrie Miller this morning, one of my favorite hosts and favorite shows, and I, I, am, I rejoined this morning. I am now a member again of Minnesota Public Radio, my 20 bucks, so if I can join from D.C., you can join too. Uh, we're having these town hall meetings around the country. I like to make book tours in the town hall meetings. This time it's almost like mini revivals around the country. First one was in Portland, Oregon, happened to be our first stop, and Powell's Bookstore, a great independent bookstore, has this, uh, their events in the Baghdad Theater, an old refurbished place, beautiful, funky old building, and, and there's a marquee outside. It was the first event I looked up, and at 7 o'clock there was, there was my name, and then at 9.30 the movie that was coming in after our book event, and there it said, Jim Wallace, American Gangster. Yeah. <laughs> So, Carrie told me Mohammed Yunus was on the second hour of this morning's show, and uh, we've been following each other around the country, and so last week it said, Mohammed Yunus, American Gangster, you know, so it's great to be, to be back. Uh, you know, we have very diverse audiences around the country, very diverse, from every tradition and some from no traditions at all. Uh, I'm a Christian, and uh, I even call myself an evangelical Christian, and you know, it, that carries a lot of baggage. There's a book out called Unchristian about people's attitudes toward Christians, which they think are unchristian. Narrow, partisan, otherworldly, judgmental, too political in a top-down kind of way. I think it's time to change the image, maybe to rebrand things a bit. I think something is happening around the country that could offer a more open, a more welcoming kind of faith, one that is characterized by compassion and defined by social justice. The first one of many radio interviews this time was in Portland, and the woman hosting the show set the tone for me for this tour. She said, we need some good news. We need some good news, and indeed we do. Uh, we've gotta face the bad news squarely. Look it straight in the eye. When revivals happen, it's offering good news in the context of bad news. So this morning I got some good news and some better news. The good news is that the dominance of the religious right over our politics and our religion is finally finished. I'm not saying they're dead and gone, they're still powerful in one of our parties, but their monologue is over. Their era is over, a new dialogue has begun, and I work with a number of them as I can. Richard Land and I went to the White House together on Darfur. Where we can find common ground, we should seize it. But the better news is that a whole lot of folks, in fact, a whole new generation, is rising up and applying their faith, using their faith, addressing their faith to the most serious challenges of our time to the moral scandal of poverty, the degradation of the environment, which in my tradition we call God's creation, the threat of climate change, pandemic diseases pillaging whole continents, the cultural assault against our, our families and, and children. I'm a dad of a nine-year-old and a four-year-old Little League baseball coach, and I'm sensitive to that now more than I ever was before. And the exclusive use of war to fight evil, which has resulted in a disastrous foreign policy that has compromised 
our ethics and our image around the world. These are big things. I think they're hopeful things. I come from Washington, and I know out here you all like jokes about Washington, so I got two jokes for you from Washington. Basically, The Great Awakening, it's mostly a joke book. Uh, <laughs> I've got some jokes here for you, and here's the first one. It's a religious joke. There's two senators, they're having lunch in the Senate dining room. One's a Republican and one's a Democrat. Now, you already know I made that up because they never do that anymore, you know? <laughs> Republican says the Democrat, you Democrats don't get religion. You don't understand it at all. You haven't got a clue about religion. Democrat says, that's not true. We do too. We're very religious, we Democrats. Republican says, well, I got 20 bucks. It says you can't recite the Lord's Prayer right here and right now. Democrat says, yes, I can too, and he begins. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Republican pulls out 20 bucks and says, darn, didn't think you could do it. <laughs> now, that joke got told to me by Richard Land, Southern Baptist leader, religious right leader, who's even Richard saying this idea of God being on one side of the political aisle or another is really silly. God is not a Democrat or a Republican, and people of faith ought to be in no party's political pocket. Amen? Amen, Amen at McAllister College? <laughs> and and I, Martin Luther King Jr., I think, had some wisdom for us in this election year. He never endorsed a candidate. He asked them to endorse the agenda of a movement. There's wisdom there for us. Now there's a political joke. Guy's drowning in the Potomac. I mean, he's really in trouble 100 feet offshore. Republicans rush down to the river, throw him 50 feet of rope, and say, the rest is up to you. <laughs> Democrats are going to do better, of course, they think. They rush down. He's really in trouble now, going down 100 feet offshore. Democrats throw him 200 feet of rope and then let go of their end. Now, it's a silly joke, but it makes a serious point, which is politics is broken in this country. Most of us feel it. Seventy percent of the American people now believe that our country is headed in the wrong direction. The good news is that when politics fails to resolve or even address the biggest moral issues of a time, what often happens is social movements rise up to change politics. And the best social movements often, almost always, have spiritual foundations. So this book is about times that historians call great awakenings, when revival breaks out and big things change, like, well, the abolition of slavery, or women's suffrage, or as Tim was saying, child labor law reform, or most famously, civil rights. And these movements, as I've been researching for the last couple of years, these movements, these big movements of progressive social reform hardly ever succeed without the significant involvement of people of faith. But because religion has no monopoly on morality, never has, never will, other folks are involved too alongside, some religious and some not. Some there because of their moral convictions. Some say they're secular, but they're morally convicted. There's a new group in this country, growing group. They're called the spiritual but not religious. 
Have you heard of these folks? It's a new denomination growing all out in the West Coast. They're big out there, right? So Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream told me, he's, Jim, I'm spiritual but not religious. I said, Ben, offer him free ice cream. You could be the bishop of this thing. <laughs> he's thinking about it, he told me. <laughs> I think there are two great hungers in our world today. The hunger for spirituality and the hunger for social justice. And the connection between the two is the one the world is waiting for, especially a new generation. This book is simply about that connection. We see dramatic changes. The agenda is changing in the faith community. My wife is a Church of England priest, uh, and I'm in England a lot with, with her, and, and uh, we go back, and I'm often on the BBC, and uh, you know, the NPR of, of Britain. And, uh, and the British audience is always stunned to hear an American Christian voice who doesn't think God is an American, <laughs> or only a Republican who only cares about abortion and gay marriage. To hear a wider agenda is stunning to them, but that wider agenda is taking hold. Rich Sizek of the National Association of Evangelicals was on a panel we did for C-SPAN around the launch of the book, and, and the agenda all of a sudden was climate change, and the environment, and HIV AIDS, and malaria, and, and, and Three billion people living on $2 a day on this planet, which is a world neither just, nor fair, nor safe for our children. Rich said the agenda in the evangelical world is changing so fast, it's like an earthquake in slow motion. Something is changing. A new generation is rising up, and to put it simply, I would say, the religious right is being replaced by Jesus, and that's progress. That's progress. In the past, these great first, second, third, fourth great awakenings uh, were very inspiring to me to read the deeper stories. And uh, Charles Finney was one of my very favorites. He was the second great awakening evangelist. He was the Billy Graham of his day. He was also an abolitionist, a revivalist. And uh, in Park Street Church, in 1831, he preached his message of the abolition of slavery and faith in Jesus. He said, come to Jesus and enlist in the campaign to overcome slavery. So I got to preach at Park Street Church just last Tuesday night. And confronting me in the packed church were a whole generation of 20-something evangelicals who think of themselves as new abolitionists. They want to apply their faith to all the places in the world, the forgotten places and forgotten people that New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof writes about all the time, the vulnerable places and people. And I could feel history almost repeating itself in the room. I tell a story about William Wilberforce, the, uh, the young British parliamentarian who got converted under the preaching of John Wesley. And he committed his life to abolishing the slave trade. He put forward the bill nine times. It took 30 years to accomplish the goal. And Wilberforce died three days later because his work was done. I tell the story of Martin Luther King Jr., of course, my mentor, who, who's very you know, wonderful in theological and academic seminary training, wasn't enough in Montgomery, Alabama, when the death threats came at midnight. And the story of his kitchen table experience over a cup of coffee when God became real and personal 
to this young minister because the more deeply you get into the struggle for justice, this thing that you call faith has to become real and personal. I think a new political agenda may be emerging out of all this. You know, John Stewart asks good questions. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, on there the other night with him and he said, last time you were here, you talked about, uh, well, this block of religious right people who want to win elections for one political party and become very partisan, and you wanted to organize an alternative. Um, how's it going? <laughs> he said, do you want to organize a religious left? to replace our religious right? I said, John, that would be a mistake because the country isn't hungry for a religious left to now mirror a religious right and do what they did in the way they did it. The country is hungry for what I'm calling a moral center, not a mushy middle, not a, a soulless centrism, but don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. What are the moral choices and challenges that lie right beneath our political debate? Something that appeals to the center of people's lives, their everyday experience, their families, their kids, their jobs, their world, their neighborhoods, and their environment. Somebody I admire from this state, former Senator Paul Wellstone once said, now is the time for progressives to thrust forward new ideas and new leaders. People yearn for a politics of the center, not the center so widely discussed by politicians and pundits in Washington, but rather a politics that speaks to the center of people's lives. Affordable childcare, good education for children, health security, living wage jobs that will support families, respect for the environment and human rights, clean elections and clean campaigns. He, he, he wanted to talk about a politics of compassion, how government can be a force for good and how we can improve the lives of our children, our communities, and our nation for generations to come. I think this agenda could be called the politics of the common good. Catholic social teaching is rich with the idea of the common good. As our Protestant traditions with the idea of the public good, the black church. Black church history is filled with a faith that cared for the whole community and when no one else did and whole, held whole neighborhoods together like the social glue. But I, I did the research, I saw how in evangelical revivals we see this notion of common good. But in Judaism, the notion of tikkun, to heal and repair the world, Shalom, which is more than peace, it's about the restoring of right relationships. And I didn't know the common good was so deep in Islam. Very rich notions of the common good were from our Muslim brothers and sisters and from our secular, democratic, constitutional traditions. We the people created our government to promote the general welfare. The moral center and the common good I think may come back to challenge the selective moralities of both the left and the right. This endless debate about the role of government I think is resolved in neither a small government or a big government, but rather an effective and a smart and a good government. I was at the State of the Union this last time, first time I was ever there. On the inside, I watch it on TV like you all do. 
But I was a guest this time, and I was in the gallery, and I watched this pageantry down below, and it really is. My wife is an Episcopalian, and I've learned from her uh, this thing about processing in church, you know, processing all the time. Well, these folks put Episcopals to shame. I mean, before the TV came on, the members of Congress processed in, and then the senators, and then the justices, and then the Joint Chiefs, and the President. Of course, we all stood up and sat down, stood up and sat down. It was a great pageant, you know? And I was watching this down on the floor, and I know a lot of these characters, and, and, and I like some of them. You know? <laughs> but it struck me again that I think sometimes they think that they are the center of the world, the center of attention, that all history moves through them. They move and shake and shape history. But history doesn't bear that out. What it suggests instead is that social movements, grassroots social movements, often change politics more than politicians change history. Lyndon Johnson wasn't a civil rights leader until Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks made him one. That's the dynamic of what social movements have always done before and can do again. You know, on this, on this tour, I've been surprised. We've had almost no pushback on the issues, none whatsoever. No one's saying poverty isn't a problem. No one's saying we shouldn't really care about those 30,000 children who died yesterday and will today and again tomorrow because of what Bono calls stupid poverty and utterly preventable disease. A whole new generation of young evangelicals thinks that Jesus might have cared more about those children than he would about gay marriage amendments in Ohio, you know. No one is saying climate change isn't real. On CNN the other night, David Gergen was saying, in very frustrated tones, climate change is real, it's a threat, and yet it would be, he said, political suicide for any candidate to suggest what we really need to reverse climate change. What do we do, he said. In the book, I talk about these big issues that will, that will do us in unless we turn them around, unless we reach what Malcolm Gladwell calls the tipping point on these issues. I don't think that politics alone can solve them. I don't think that education alone will be enough or the right program or the right strategy. It will take movements that have an engine, an energy, a kind of spiritual force to them. The question I'm getting on the tour is not about the issues. The question is this. It's to me fascinating. They say to me, you know, Jim, this is a very hopeful book. It's a hopeful book, but can we dare to have hope? Can we believe that these things could change? They're not asking critically, but almost wistfully, almost longingly, can we have hope? And so what I've ended up talking about at every stop on the tour is what I think is the big spiritual choice that we have. The big choice that people like us, I think, need to make. I doubt if those of you in this great university chapel today, I doubt if you uh, don't already care about these issues. 
That's why you're here. You're probably already involved. That's why you're here. But we have to make some choices. I think the big choice is this. The choice is between hope and cynicism. That's the big choice. I like the cynics. I mean, they're realists. They see the world as it is. No rose-colored glasses. They, the cynics are always against the bad stuff. And for a while, maybe they even tried to change it. They got involved, but it didn't change, and they got disillusioned and disappointed and, and maybe despairing, and after a while felt a bit vulnerable out there. So they pulled back to a place called cynicism, where you can still be against all the bad stuff, but you don't really think it'll ever change. So you surround yourself with a bit more security, and your cynicism becomes a buffer against commitment. A buffer against commitment. Hope, on the other hand, isn't a feeling. It's not a, a mood and not a personality type. It's not a cup half full kind of person. Hope is a choice, a decision you make because of this thing that we call faith. The book of Hebrews says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or my best paraphrase still means, says hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Tim, when I was here last time, you told me about one of your other speakers who'd come, uh, named Desmond Tutu. He came up this morning with Carrie Miller again on the radio, and so I thought I'd close with a story from Desmond Tutu about this choice. I love Desmond Tutu. He's been an elder, a mentor to me. He's kind of like Yoda, you know, a little man, you know, <laughs> but he's so wise and so strong. I remember during the difficult days when Nelson Mandela was still in prison, when all the activists had been exiled or imprisoned or tortured or killed, only ones left standing were a handful of church leaders like Archbishop Desmond Tutu. A call went out for help, and a few of us were snuck in the country in a clandestine way. And I went to St. George's Cathedral on that first day to meet Bishop Tutu and begin our conversations about an alliance that we hoped would finally end apartheid and did create the sanctions campaign. But in those days, it was so difficult. And I got there at a very dramatic moment because there was, a, there was a, an event going on in his cathedral. They called for a rally. Government had canceled it. And so Desmond Tutu said, okay, we're going to have church. Try and cancel that. Well, they didn't want to cancel that. So we had church, and there were 300 of us in that small cathedral, a huddle of worshipers outside, three times as many security police and military personnel, automatic weapons, riot gear. They were there to intimidate us, to make us afraid. With me, it was working quite well, you know. <laughs> Just as he began to preach, they burst through the doors of his cathedral, the South African security police. They lined the walls with tape recorders in their hands and pads of paper with pens. They were saying, go ahead. You be bold, you be prophetic, you be brave. We're going to get it down, and we're going to get you again. 
you were in prison, remember? Two weeks ago, we'll put you back there. They were saying, in effect, we own this place. We own this country. We own this cathedral. We own your religion. We own you. We own your God. What would he say? What would he do? We're all watching him so closely, and he just stood there for a moment, looking down. Then he looked up at them, gazed from side to side. Then he pointed his finger at them, and he said, You, you are powerful, very powerful, but you are not gods. And I serve a God who will not be mocked. Then he smiled, that wonderful Desmond Tutu smile you've seen on TV. And he, and he, he began laughing at them. Of course, politely, he's an Episcopal bishop, you know. <laughs> he said, and I love this part, he said, so, he says, since you have already lost, since you have already lost, then he began bouncing like a good American black Baptist preacher. Since you've already lost, we invite you today to come and join the winning side. And the place erupted, and the young people began dancing. And we danced outside into the streets, and the military moved back. They didn't expect dancing worshipers. And we danced in the streets of South Africa. And 10 years later, I had the blessing of being at the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. Guess who was the master of ceremonies? Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I said, Bishop, do you remember St. George's that morning? Do you remember what you said? Do you remember what you did? And he smiled because he remembered. I said, Bishop, today they've all joined the winning side because you can't, couldn't find one white South African that day who hadn't always been against apartheid. And he showed me that when he used to say, as Christians, we are prisoners of hope, he wasn't being some uh, utopian, idealistic old man. He was saying, this is the dynamic of history. Here's how it happens. First, you have faith, and it prompts hope. It creates action, and it makes change. That's always the chain of history. Faith, hope, action, and change. And then when the change comes, you have a party like the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. And 150,000 of us heard him announce the birth of a new nation. Tears flowing down our faces. But you know what? People of faith who are involved, who believe the right things to make this choice between hope and cynicism. People of faith have done these things before. People of conscience have done these things before. And now it's time to do them again because we know that we are on the winning side. 
Hope means believing in spite of the evidence. And then watching the evidence change. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim Wallace. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from McAllister College in St. Paul. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Jim Wallace. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience in Weyerhaeuser Chapel, I'd like to thank the co-sponsor of today's forum, the Center for Religious and Spiritual Life at McAllister College. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for our next Town Hall Forum on Thursday, February 28th, when historian Randall Balmer will explore God in the White House, how faith shapes the presidency. Jim Wallace, if you would now return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First, a question about the term and the social history of revivals. It's a uniquely Christian phenomenon in America. America is not a uniquely Christian nation these days in particular. What kinds of response are you finding from other communities of faith as you speak of the new politics and religion in the U.S. using the phrase revival particularly? Well, I was in San Diego last month speaking to a conference of 6,000 rabbis, and there was a whole contingent of young people involved in Jewish renewal which they linked to social justice. And it was exciting just to be around all their excitement. They're rediscovering their own roots. And, and uh, in my course this fall at Harvard, I had Daisy Khan come and speak about Quranic revival as a Muslim woman and how she's organizing Muslim women all around the world who have a very different vision of their faith than Osama bin Laden does. And she's taking her life in her hands in, in doing so. And then, as I say, there are people uh, who uh, every time come out and they say, they raise their hand and say, I'm, I'm secular, uh, I, I, uh, uh, I'm not religious, but I, I'm drawn to this as a room for me. I didn't feel kicked to the curb tonight by this. Um, a, a young kid in my course this fall at Harvard, he said, when they all went around and said who they were, he said, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, but I'm a friendly bridge-building atheist. He said, I'm trying to make up for Hitchens and Dawkins. <laughs> and he wrote a great paper on what he called uh, secular humanism and Christian humanism and how the two have so many points of contact. There's a new conversation happening between religious and secular progressives and how we cannot be afraid of each other and how we can find some common ground, a very hopeful combination, conversation indeed. And what are some of the specifics of those uh touching points where people of faith and people who might be resistant to faith can work together. Can you name some specifics? Well, most of the issues that I'm uh, talking about here, in fact, Carter, Carter in his, uh, his forward here says, says this, what we need is a way to tap the power of the revival of faith in order to inspire and encourage the secular social reforms that are espoused in all of the great religions. So many of our great religions, uh, you know, can converge on things like 
what you do with the other 2,000 verses in the Bible about poor people. Uh, in, in Jewish tradition, what you do with the other. Uh, in the Quran, the same thing. Around the poor, around the, the imperiled planet, uh, around this notion of the common good. I was amazed at the diversity of access points to this idea of the politics of the common good. So I think when we have that moral discourse in politics that we all need and we're all needed for, you can begin to talk about how to find common ground by moving to higher ground. Religion used not as a wedge to divide us, but a bridge to pull us together on some of the biggest issues of our time. Here's a question from someone in the audience who uh, apparently is an agnostic or atheist. Do you think human revival is more inclusive than spiritual revival? Uh, I'm still included because I'm a human being. Human revival. Sure. Um, but you, you look at the civil rights movement, for example. And the night before the march, the actions in the streets during the day, Birmingham, Selma, there'd be a service, usually in the black church. Now you'd have, you'd have Baptists there like King, you'd have rabbis there like Abraham Joshua Heschel, and you had people who would say they're agnostic or they're atheist. And, and to, to this day, they would still say they're secular. But they would talk about those moments, those nights, as the most spiritual experiences in their lives or the nights of, of moral transformation because you had to get ready to confront the dogs and the clubs and the water cannon in the streets. You needed spiritual preparation, whether you were religious or not, to be prepared for nonviolent, direct action, disciplined, nonviolent response in the streets. So I think movements, what I'm saying, it needs more than just education and politics and strategy. It's got to have some engine, some driving force that can mostly sustain the hope that movements need. Movements provide the hope that we don't have, the will, the energy, the engine, and that's what revival often does, and it can come uh, from a, a variety of sources. Another question from our listeners here. Are we too comfortable with our culture and perhaps our socioeconomic status to stand up with our lives, as you suggest, what breaks the kind of complacency we see in our communities? There's a kind of a, someone asked this morning in another event about the cultural numbing, um, the, uh, what affluence can do to you, what, um, what uh, this kind of a, a narcissistic culture can, even the quest for spirituality in an affluent country can become very narcissistic. One more, there's a whole wall of books at Borders and Barnes and Noble about how to be whole and healed and deeper and balanced and all the rest for a price. You know? I think the quest for spirituality, not disciplined by the struggle for justice, can lead to narcissism. On the other hand, the struggle for justice, not nourished in spiritual roots and soil can become tired and despairing and bitter and angry and hateful and even violent. So that's why I keep talking about this connection between the two, between spirituality on one hand and social justice on the other hand. 
The United States has created a tragic situation in Iraq. What responsibility do we have and how do we accept that responsibility for that situation? Well, I was, I was opposed to this war from the beginning. Um, a number of us put forward an alternative to it. We thought the threat of Saddam Hussein was real. We thought he should have been uh, disarmed and removed from power. We, we thought he had these weapons of mass destruction. We thought we did because we had all the receipts, you know. And, and, uh, and, but a number of us... A, a number of us thought that there was a better way to undermine a regime like Saddam Hussein than bombing the children of Baghdad. And now I've been in touch with so many Iraq veterans groups and it just breaks my heart every time I hear another story about the loss of a father or a mother or a son or a daughter. Now we have to make a responsible transition from an American occupation which will never produce the security and democracy we need in Iraq uh, to something that is a much more international solution to a problem that we have now really helped to create. Uh, it's a matter of our priorities. I was in Davos for the World Economic Forum uh, recently, and there was a room full of smart people trying to figure out a big problem. 800 million children not educated, not going to school ever in the world. Kids never going to school. 800 million Bill Gates was there. Queen Rania was there. Some of the world's smartest and richest people. They figured out it would cost $10 billion to educate 800 million children per year. Here's the richest people in the world passing a hat in a little form at Davos. And then I just pointed out that that's $10 billion is five weeks of Iraq. So what makes us more secure in the world? Educating 800 million children which a number of madrasas would like to educate if no one else does, or five more weeks of chaos in Iraq. I think we have to not just talk about what's wrong with that war, what some now call a stupid war, but talk about a whole new narrative for American foreign policy, a whole new narrative for how we are secure. And we will not be secure in the developed world until more people in the developing world are secure themselves. Unless we drain the swamps of injustice in which these mosquitoes of terrorism breed, we will not end the war in poverty or succeed in the war on terrorism. Number of questions about the current political campaign. I might note that uh, here we are for the first time in the history of the forum, the, the people receiving the questions, these McAllister students are actually writing questions as well. Uh, and a number of them are about politics, as you might imagine, about the current political campaign. Uh, how do you see the, the current candidates for president using some of the concepts you're talking about, uh, this social movement and uh, social justice? Well, this is going to be a very different uh, election year when it comes to religion and public life, or faith and politics, than it was in 2004. Been two big shifts, I think. One Time Magazine calls the leveling of the praying field. <laughs> because now we have candidates on both sides of the aisle talking authentically, 
comfortably about their faith. Sojourners and CNN had a forum we put on in June last year on faith, values, and poverty. We had the three Democratic frontrunners there, Barack, Hillary, and John Edwards, all of whom are committed laypeople, Christian laypeople. I want to say you shouldn't have to be a Christian or a religious person to be the president. But these three happen to be committed Christian laypeople, and it showed the world that faith isn't just on one side of the aisle or another. And that was a helpful thing to see. And so, you know, Barack and Hillary are doing faith forums in Iowa and New Hampshire. Why they chose Iowa and New Hampshire, I have no idea. You know, or, or, or Barack had gospel concerts in South Carolina. Again, why South Carolina? I'm not sure. But they're having outreach to faith communities. And what this shows is that this whole conversation needs to take place in a better way on both sides of the aisle. More important than that, though, is the shift in the agenda. Huge shift. Poverty is on the agenda now for evangelicals. The environment, HIV AIDS, uh, Rich Sizek is almost a prophet Amos on global warming and climate change. Lynn Hybels uh, from Willow Creek, the big megachurch in Chicago, came to our launch of the book. She said, why did it take an Irish rock star to call me to the poor in Africa? Bono's been, been her evangelist. And, 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 but it's changed me and my church. Uh, Sam Rodriguez, Hispanic evangelical leader, says immigration is a religious issue. It's called welcoming the stranger. So a whole new set of issues are now on the agenda, and that makes for a much more lively conversation than the old narrow agenda of just two moral values issues. And many of those same folks care deeply about the sanctity of life. I care deeply about the sanctity of life. But if I'm an unborn child, and I want the support of the extreme religious right, I better stay unborn as long as possible. Because once I'm born, I go off the radar screen. So how about, as Joel Hunter said at our forum, a conservative evangelical pastor, how about care for the sanctity of life from womb to tomb and a more comprehensive agenda? Cardinal Bernadine called it a consistent ethic of life, a seamless garment. That would challenge both left and right in some new and creative ways. You use the phrase, uh, uh, talking a lot about hope in your uh, books and in your speaking, uh, the phrase politics of hope is being bandied about and criticized in this campaign. Any reflections on that particular phrase? Well, uh, I've known Barack for 10 years, <laughs> and we've been talking about this for a long time. And uh, uh, what's interesting in this election, I think the results are in. I think change has won. <laughs> change has won this election. Now they're all competing to see who is the best agent for change. You know, uh, hope, experience, all of that debate. Even the Republicans are talking about being outside agents, and their party was in the White House last I checked. And so, and, and so everybody now wants to be a Washington outsider and talk about change. That means that the American people are, are hungry for change and hungry for hope. Uh, now, I think that's got to be, uh, to be put into concrete historical terms. So I want to say this. Whoever your favorite candidate is today, and we're not going to take a poll, but whoever your favorite is, I want to tell you they will not be able to change the big things in Washington unless and until there are social movements pushing and pressing from the outside to change those big things. There are three pharmaceutical lobbyists for every member of Congress. That's one industry. So even if they want to change, they won't be able to 
until people like us begin to build those movements. So if your favorite wins, don't fold your arms and sit back and say, let's see if he or she produces. No, if your favorite wins, or anybody who wins, that's when we start producing movements, momentum, campaigns to hold them accountable. The formula for change, usually, is movements pushing on open doors. We need open doors, but we need movements to push on the open doors. That's what all these great awakenings and revivals did in the past, and that's what I see beginning to emerge now again in our time. A question about Jesus and his involvement in politics. Uh, throughout Jesus' life, he never takes particular partisan positions in local politics. How can you justify participating in politics in a faith-based Christian community? Well, that's a great question, and there's a whole chapter on that in the book about not just whether Christians and others ought to change the world, but how. Jesus confronted four political options. They were, to put them briefly, uh, collaborationist, private piety, withdrawal, and revolutionary violence. They were all on the table. He was drawn to a couple, not to the others. He finally rejected them all. And he chose a new way. He called his way the kingdom of God, something that was a new order in history, would change not just lives, but change things spiritually, uh, personally, economically, socially, and politically. It was a whole new order of things. It was too big and too much for the options of his day, and I think it would be now too. There's a text that I think is the text of this new revival. It's Luke chapter 4, which is Jesus' first sermon, his first gig, his first, uh, uh, his, his mission statement, his Nazareth manifesto, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news, and the word there is evangel, good news to the poor. And that's the word from which we get the word evangelical. But that says this gospel, whatever else it does, it might cure our addictions and heal our relationships and mend our families back together and put our feet on a new path. All that's wonderful, but if it isn't good news to poor people, it isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I read that text right. That is the text that will open up new possibilities of involvement. And it's far more than just lobbying and party politics, but I think Wilberforce and King and Dorothy Day and Oscar Romero, they based their engagement on the model and example of Jesus. And I think that's a pretty good place to start. Several questions about uh, colleges and college students uh, and their response to the kind of awakening you're talking about, particularly a secular college campus. Well, we've, uh, we've had some great times at campuses uh, around the country already, and they've been running out of chairs at all these, these meetings for all the students who want to come. Uh, I, it's interesting because when I, when I was a young, when I was their age, I hate to say that, when I was your age, uh, I got kicked out of my church over the issue of race. They said, Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political, and our faith is personal. And that's the night that I think I left in my head and my heart as a 14-year-old. And I came back later. That's a different story. But I didn't have words to go around that. I do now. And the words would be, God is personal, but never private. Never private. I had to leave my faith and my church to become a social activist. 
I see a generation now being fueled and inspired in their activism by their faith. I see a new student movement arising at evangelical Christian colleges, Jesuit Catholic universities, and some of the religious groups at the so-called secular schools. At Harvard, where I teach, it's the religious groups, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, they're leading the way on Darfur, on HIV AIDS, on on, uh, homelessness. So this is a new activism that has faith helping to inspire it and not kicking people out because they have a heart for social justice. And I find that to be an important change. And your final question, we have time for one more. Uh, You spoke of markers, uh, uh, emerging evidence for the hope that you described. What are some of the markers? What what do you say to the next step for these people listening to you here in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis? What are the next steps to engage those emerging signs of hope? Well, um, this, um, the writing of the book and the, uh, uh, the, you know, one's own praying and vocational discernment all got tangled up together for me in this last year. And I come out of this more than ever um, feeling called, just in my own calling, to to be just a a revival preacher. (laughs) That's what I want to do. And uh, we're talking about something called justice revivals around the country beginning in mid-April in Ohio. Uh, And uh, it really is linking the tradition of Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. It's talking about young people catching fire and offering their lives, talents, and gifts. The churches ask for the edges of people's lives, and that's what they often get, just the edges. So what have we talked about the kind of call to action, to conversion, that really could, what I call changing the wind of our culture and our politics. I think there's something that is ready to be mobilized. It's already happening around the country. It's in neighborhoods. It's gonna be a commitment that, the book I talk about being personal. If you're not doing this in in the home front with your families, your resources, your lifestyle, where you live, how you live, and mostly what you teach your kids. You know, what happens, what my nine-year-old and four-year-old understand is maybe the most important thing I can do. And then in our neighborhoods, congregations, communities, we had to show what this means. In neighbor, lead in neighborhoods. Finally, public policy, because you can't overcome global warming by just changing light bulbs. You can't keep pulling bodies out of the river and not send somebody upstream to see what or who is throwing them in. Budgets are moral documents. But movements have to make personal commitments, communal commitments, and then public policy directions. I think that there are signs of change in the land, and the reason why the political dialogue is talking so much about hope now is because we are so hungry for it. That hunger is a holy hunger, a holy hunger for change and for hope. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness and justice, for they shall be satisfied. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim Wallace. (laughs) 
a reminder to all of you who are interested in the new book of uh, Mr. Wallace's, it's, it's uh, for sale right over there on the way out, and he will be signing it back here until 1.30 in the center of the chapel. Be sure to stop by the, the information table about Plymouth Congregation, uh, the, the conference in April, where Mr. Wallace will return with uh, Ray Suarez and um, Michael Lerner. And uh, I wish I could invite you, as we typically do, to our Town Hall Forum crowd to a lunch someplace, but I gather you'll have to go find it in a restaurant. Uh, thank you for coming. We'll, we hold our next Town Hall Forum in just one week back at Westminster, Minneapolis, uh, taking a look at uh, the presidential office and faith. A van will be available to take any McAllister students who want to go to that forum. Sign up at the information desk on your way out. Thank you very much for coming. We'll see you soon.